You may put your hymn books aside and open your Bibles to John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. I'll ask you to remain standing for the reading of the sermon text this morning. John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You may be seated. Well, good morning. As I came to this text this morning, I was thinking we might have finally come to a text where we could bite off a, a fairly large chunk. Uh, John chapter 9 is one story. Uh, it is a story, a beautiful story, of Jesus healing a man born blind, uh, restoring his sight. And even more significantly, that man receives spiritual sight as he comes to believe in Jesus at the end of the story. But as I sat down to dig into the text, I realized that the first few verses give us a wonderful answer from Jesus to the question of suffering. And so for this morning, we will stick to the beginning of this story, uh, take a break from our regular uh, way of just working through the text. We will, this will be somewhat of a topical sermon as we will take this question from Jesus and look at how he answers it and seek to see how that ought to inform our lives and help us to understand some of these very real, very large, and very difficult questions. So let us commit our time to the Lord this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you have seen fit to give us many answers to many of our most difficult questions. Father, as we look to your word now, I pray that you would open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to receive your word for what it is. Lord, I pray that you would help me. May all that is said give grace to those who hear. And I pray especially for those who are facing hardships and difficulties. Lord, I pray that they would find comfort and encouragement from your word. I pray that they would grow to trust you more and more, to trust your character, your goodness, and your steadfast commitment to do good to all who are in Christ. Father, bless now the preaching of your word. Use this time to shape us and mold us evermore into the image of Christ. And may you be glorified in all things. In the name of Christ, our mediator, we pray. Amen. So yes, if you have your Bibles open, you can look with me. Let's read together from John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So we start with a, a break from the previous section, uh, this transition as he passed by. Uh, the location is not all that important to the story, uh, but rather it is the events of the story that John focuses on. So notice here that the disciples start off by making an assumption. Right? They see this man born blind, blind from his birth. And their assumption is, somebody sinned. Right, was it him or was it his parents? Now on one level, they are not wrong to see a connection between sin and suffering. In one sense, all suffering can be traced back 
to the fact that somebody did sin. God's original design when he created this world, creating mankind, his image bearers, the original design did not involve suffering. Man was in paradise, the Garden of Eden. There was no suffering, illness, disease, death, or disability there. But Adam, as the covenant head of mankind, followed his wife into sin. He broke the commandment of God, and as a result, all of mankind, all of the earth, has been placed under a curse. Suffering, pain, disease, sickness, death, and disability, all of this can be traced to the fact that someone did sin. And we all sinned in him. We also see it true in some cases in scripture that specific ailments, illnesses and the like, are in fact given as punishments for sin. You remember Miriam who grumbled against Moses and was struck with leprosy. Or Gehazi, Elisha's servant, uh, who was also given leprosy as a punishment for his greed. But the disciples here go much further than simply acknowledging that there is a general connection between sin and suffering, or that it is a specific judgment in certain instances. Notice instead, they look at this man blind from his birth and assume that there must be an airtight, specific, one-to-one correlation. Right? One of these two options, they ask, was it him who sinned, or was it his parents who sinned? Now, that's an interesting question of a man who was born blind to ask, did he sin? Or did he sin while still in the womb? Uh, was he guilty through something that his mother did while pregnant with him? D.A. Carson comments that this was the, uh, the view at the time, that when a pregnant woman would worship in a pagan temple, her unborn child was regarded as having participated in that pagan worship. So here's the question. Which was it? It's one of these two. Was it him who sinned or was it his parents who sinned? And that is actually a fairly common view even today. Even to this specific level. Some of you may know I have an uncle who was born blind. And my grandparents had similar questions come to them. Basically asking, what did you do to deserve this? Right? You must have sinned somehow, and now this is your punishment. Right? As if it weren't difficult enough to face a trial like this. This view now had the horrible results of blaming people for their own sufferings. Saying, in essence, your suffering is your fault. It's very similar uh, conception, that's much like the conception of karma within Hinduism. Right, the idea there is that whatever the circumstances are of your life, these are the direct results either of your actions now or your actions in a past life. Uh, so if you are born into a low caste, right, the, the lowest uh, class of society, the untouchables, if you are born into a life of suffering, the assumption is this is karma. 
right? This is your fault. This is the result of things that you had done in a past life. And now this is essentially justice, you getting what you deserve. Make better choices and maybe you'll be born into a higher caste in your next life. Now the result of this is that the lowly and the downcast, those who are most in need of help and compassion, are frequently despised. Your suffering is your fault. You deserve this. Now, so why would I help you? I believe this is one of the horrible results of the so-called prosperity gospel as well. This teaching is that it is always God's will to heal. It is always God's will to bless you financially. And so if you will just give enough money to this ministry, to this preacher, or if you will just have enough faith, God will bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity. You can see how this too makes suffering our fault. For if it is always God's will to heal, what are we to say to the person who doesn't get healed? What are we to say to the person whose prayer doesn't get answered? Even if they don't say it directly, the message is this. Your suffering is your fault. For if you just had more faith, God would have answered your prayer. Woe to the preacher or teacher who would heap such guilt and condemnation upon a child of God in suffering. Such teaching destroys those who hear, can destroy their faith multiple ways, may cause them to doubt that they are even children of God. Right? For they believe that if they would have had enough faith, God would have healed them. And so the fact that God didn't heal, didn't answer their prayer as they asked, must mean that they don't have faith. So they wonder, am I even a Christian? Does God receive my faith at all? If my faith wasn't strong enough for God to be willing to answer that prayer, do I have enough faith for him to answer any prayer? Do I have enough faith to be saved? So they can very easily fall away in despair. For although they thought they had faith, according to this teaching, it apparently wasn't enough. Or perhaps they don't doubt their faith, but they now doubt that God is a God who keeps his promises. Right? If this was a guarantee, a promise that all who have faith will receive health, wealth, and prosperity, then it is now very clearly to them a broken promise. And so these prosperity gospel preachers have turned God into a liar. A God who does not keep his promises. So these people very often will turn their back on God. For they believe that God has turned their backs, his back, on them. 
I think there are many people in this category. People who are angry with God for having broken his promises. People who are angry with God for having failed them somehow. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, let us know this. God always keeps his promises. The problem is that these people had either been told or had come to believe that God had promised them something that he hasn't hasn't actually promised. And so these people are holding God to be guilty for breaking promises that he never actually made. The fact is, God has not promised us pain-free lives. God has not guaranteed us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. He has not guaranteed that his children will never go through suffering, even intense suffering. I think this is so clearly illustrated through the lives of the apostles and prophets. Right? If we are going to say that the sign of God's favor is health, wealth, and prosperity, then what do we say about the apostles and prophets, about the early church, those who called upon the name of Christ, who underwent extreme persecution for the name of Christ? Right? The apostle Paul, who experienced shipwreck, beatings, imprisonment, hunger, cold exposure, all these different sufferings for the sake of Christ. The prosperity gospel would make us believe that God hated his apostles and prophets. No, but in fact, all of us will suffer. Scripture tells us so. All of us will one day face death in this life. And along the way, we will all lose people whom we love. Most of us will have to bury our parents. Some of us have had to bury our children. So real Christians, real children of God, do go through suffering. And so going through suffering is not a surefire sign that they must have sinned and that the suffering is now the punishment. Instead, we see that we live in a fallen world. That sin has ravaged this world. And that things are not yet as they one day will be. So we can see the flawed assumption in this question from the disciples as they ask, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Look with me to the answer from Christ. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So who was it, Lord? Who was it? Was it him or was it his parents 
that he, who sinned, that he was born blind. And Jesus says, neither. Neither. Suffering is not a sure sign that somebody has sinned and is now being punished for it. It was not his sin, nor was it his parents' sin. You have created a false dichotomy, right? You've set up the question as if there was only one of two possible answers. Jesus says they're both wrong. Both wrong. It was not that this man sinned, nor that his parents sinned. That's not why he was born blind. And Jesus gives an amazing answer. He says, here's why. Here's why he was born blind. That the works of God might be displayed in him. So let us catch this. This is tremendously significant. The reason for this man's blindness, Jesus says, is not to be found in his nor his parents' sin. The reason is to be found in the sovereign purposes of Almighty God. God had a good purpose in mind for this, that the works of God might be put on display, might be manifested in this man. And as we'll see next week, Jesus is about to heal him. Jesus is about to open his eyes and to grant him his sight. The works of God were to be displayed in him. Just let us back up for a second and consider this answer. Right, so if this was the purpose, right, this was why he was born blind, then what we know from this is that before this man's birth, God intended for this man to encounter Jesus and to be healed of his blindness. Before this man's birth, God intended for this story to be recorded in sacred scripture and proclaimed to all creation as a testimony and revelation of the eye-opening power of the Lord Jesus Christ. A testimony to his sovereign power to heal, a testimony to his victory over the curse as he is turning back the effects of the fall, turning back the effects of sin, suffering, and death. And it is a precursor of that which Christ will bring to complete fulfillment. God had a glorious purpose in mind for him. God's power was displayed in his life. God planned from before his birth that this story would be a blessing and encouragement preached in Grace Covenant Church this Lord's Day, July 16th, year of our Lord, 2023. It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was because God had a glorious purpose for his life that he was working out. Jesus' answer, look to the sovereign purposes of God. <clears throat> now you might be thinking, well, sure, it's all well and good for this man, right? It's great that God had a purpose for him to put his story into scripture, to have him encounter Jesus. But what about me? Right? My story, my suffering will not be recorded in the pages of scripture. Right? 
canon is closed. My story will not be preached, will not be an encouragement to millions as this man's story was and is. So what am I to do with my pain, with my suffering? That is a good question. Is God equally sovereign? Is he equally purposeful in the things that happen to me, the things that happen to us? Does God have a purpose in in the things that happen in our lives as well? Answer from Scripture is yes. Absolutely yes. Our God is no less sovereign today than he was then. Scripture teaches that God's sovereign providence, right, his preserving and governing of all things, extends to all of his creation, and that he is working in and through all things to bring them to his appointed ends. these These are big questions. The answers from the text of Scripture, these are the truths that will carry you through the darkest periods of your life. So I want you all to see it for yourself from the Scriptures. Right? As great as it is to be able to trust your pastor, right, to take my word for it, I want you to see it for yourself from God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. <clears throat> Romans 8, 28. Possibly my favorite verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, all things work together for good. Are you in Christ? Are you a lover of God who has been called and drawn to him? Again, we know that only happens through the power of God in us. Are you a Christian? And see this. All things are working together for your good. All things. The good, the bad, the painful, the absolutely unbearable, the greatest joys, the greatest triumphs, as well as the most difficult and terrible things in your life, all things are working together for good. Life is not random. We are not merely star stuff. We are not the product of time plus matter plus chance. We are not, as atheist Richard Dawkins suggests, here in a universe with no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but merciless, pitiless indifference. That is not the story. Rather, as Ephesians 1.11 tells us, this is all the story of our sovereign God, for he is the one who works all things 
according to the counsel of his will. As Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 puts it, God is the one who has declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now I understand that this can be a hard truth if this is new to you. Right? For many people, the idea that God is the one who ordains all things, right, even the sufferings in our lives, right, that can be a tough pill to swallow if you've never come across that idea. But I would suggest to you that this is actually the greatest source of comfort that we could possibly have to help us endure our suffering. For we need to understand that if God wasn't sovereign over our trials, if these difficult things weren't from his hand in any way, this creates an even bigger problem. For then all of our difficulties, all of our sufferings and trials would be shown to be meaningless. God didn't have a purpose for it if God wasn't sovereign over it. Right, so if you convince me that God is doing his best, that he was trying really hard, but was simply, for whatever reason, unable to prevent the suffering in my life, if you convince me of that, you have not comforted me at all. You have simply painted God as an impotent, yet well-meaning grandfather in the sky. Not only does such a view make out God to be a weak and ineffectual deity, but it has also completely removed the possibility of meaning from human suffering. A God who is not sovereign over history cannot possibly have a purpose for history. A God who is not sovereign over my life cannot have a sovereign purpose for my life. A God who is not the author of the story cannot be accomplishing a purpose in the telling of that story. A God who is not sovereign over my suffering cannot have a purpose for my suffering. But thank the Lord that that is not the case. We worship a sovereign God. We worship an omnipotent God, awesome in power, perfect in holiness. His wisdom is unsearchable. His knowledge, unfathomable. Psalm 115, verse 3, as we read this morning. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
the God who spoke all things into being and upholds them by the word of his power. The God who knows the way to the dwelling of light and the place of darkness, who has made the storehouses of snow and hail, who sends the east wind where he wishes, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and directs every thunderbolt, the God who has begotten every drop of dew and has bound the chains of the constellations, buckled the belt of Orion, leads forth the stars into their place. This God is our God. The God who is sovereign over the smallest of animals so that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from him. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As Matthew 10, 29, 31, very similar, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So to what does Jesus point when telling his disciples not to fear? Where does he direct them in trying to comfort and strengthen them against anxiety and fear? Jesus points to the meticulous providence of God. He draws application from the fact that if God is sovereign even over the small things, right? if he is the one who is providing food for the birds and clothing for the grass of the field, if not one little bird 
falls to the ground apart from him, then we can be confident that our lives are in his hands too. Jesus says, God has a running tally on the number of hairs on your head. I think by extension, you could say the number of cells in your body. Everything about you, down to the smallest detail, God knows. God has ordained. God is actively upholding. All things are under his sovereign care and providence. He is the one who has declared the end from the beginning, and he is sovereign over every sparrow, lily, and ladybug that lives between the end and the beginning. This sovereign God has declared to us that if we are counted among those who love him, that is, if we are united to his Son, then everything that happens to us is working to serve our good. So not one of your tears was meaningless. Not one of your sleepless nights was ignored by God. He has a purpose for it all. And if you are in Christ, you can be assured it is a good purpose. There are times you will see in hindsight, even in this life, just what God's purpose was. Or you can sometimes see that opportunity passed you by, right? that job opening closed up on you because God had something better in store. Right, that job that you wanted but didn't get and turned out to put your life on a different track than what you had in mind for yourself and now uh, a track that you wouldn't trade for the world. Or that relationship that you prayed about and didn't work out and it happened to be just in time for you to meet the person you are now married to. Now, as the country song puts it, find yourself thanking God for unanswered prayers. Sometimes we will see in this life what God's good purposes were. But there will also be tragedies which strike us, of which we cannot possibly fathom what kind of good purpose God could have for such horrible pain, sorrow, and tragedy. In the face of these situations, explanations tend to fall flat, The usual well-meaning things people say tend to strike us as trite and dismissive. What do we do then? Trust. Trust in your sovereign and omnipotent God. Believe his word. Believe his promises. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When you are at the end of yourself, your well of tears has run dry, and you're not sure what else to do, turn 
to the Lord. Trust in God. Rest in him. And if you doubt his ability to bring good out of great evil, or if you doubt his love for his children, fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. For the cross is the ultimate demonstration of how God can and does plan and ordain and use the greatest evil to bring about the greatest good. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says this. The church is praying. They say, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now the crucifixion of Christ is undoubtedly the most evil thing that has ever been done by man. There is no more heinous evil that has ever been committed than when man murdered the incarnate God. There was nobody who had ever been perfect, and a perfect man came, and mankind killed him. And yet, notice what the text said, right? All of this evil, all of this sinning, the unjust trial, the lying witnesses, the bloodlust of the of the mobs, of the crowds, the cowardly pragmatism of Pilate and of Herod, the envious plotting of the Jews, all of it was done exactly as God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. In the sovereignty of God, the greatest evil ever committed was exactly what God had ordained to be the salvation of the world. It was the very means by which God was redeeming his fallen creation, taking that curse upon himself. So let us never doubt God's ability to take the greatest evil and to use it for the highest good. For God has demonstrated his ability to do this supremely through the cross of Christ. Now, as we said, it is true that all suffering is because of sin. Somebody sinned. Adam sinned. Scripture says, we sinned in him. And we still sin. And what we all deserve for this sin is suffering greater than anything that anyone will ever experience here in this life. So as we grapple with the problem of evil in the world, as we struggle through our own sufferings and trials, let us remember this. The greatest answer we have to the problem of suffering and the problem of evil, the greatest answer we have is the God-man who took our suffering upon himself. Christ, the second Adam, our curse bearer, who bore in himself the suffering that his people deserved, 
As Christ died on the cross, the wrath of God against the sin of his people was poured out on him. And the offer is now given that if we will have faith in Christ, that we will receive forgiveness because of what he has done. That he bore our sin in himself on the cross. Now people often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, that's only ever happened once. And he volunteered. If you're ever tempted to doubt the love of God for his children, look at the cross. 1 John 4, verse 9, says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That is, this is how it was proven, demonstrated. This is how the love of God was put on display. This is how the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, to be the wrath satisfying sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for our sins. God says the cross proves his love. So Christian, if you're tempted to doubt the love of God, look to the cross. See the son dying in your place and believe. See the sun rising from the dead and see the wisdom of God put on display. Our lives on this earth are in some ways like the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. You think of that day the disciples had scattered, the disciples were in despair, having no idea how God was going to bring this tragedy around and turn it into the greatest of victories. But make no mistake, Resurrection Sunday came. That tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. Death and suffering did not have the last word. And because that Resurrection Sunday came, suffering will not have the last word for you either if you are in Christ. For if you are in him, you will be raised just as he was raised. Slogan from the Reformation, post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. After the night comes the dawn. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And what a morning that will be. Every tear wiped from our eyes. Pain, death, and suffering no more. This is how that story ends. This is how our story ends. Those threads will be all woven together. And you will, with the benefit of redeemed and resurrected eyes and the perfect clarity of hindsight, you will then be able to see how it was that God was working all things together for your good. How he was forming all of history into this beautiful tapestry. So take heart, for even if you never see it in this life, 
trust God's promise that he has a purpose, that it is all working together for his glory and for the good of his people. Let us keep the end in mind and the sacrifice and resurrection that secured that end. Let us trust always in our sovereign God. Amen.